Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So as we're sitting here in the studio, we're trying to determine if this is, in fact, the 200th episode of Rational Security or possibly the 201st. Or maybe the 199th. I think it's the 200th, but now I'm thinking it's wrong. All I know is that it's been three years. I think it's been three years. Yeah. Matt's gone through the files and suggested this is 201. <laughs> but Jeff <laughs> says it's 199. This is clearly a very momentous. And we have PodTrack says one. I think we should just define it as, Let's as just episode say this is the 200. Episode. And if that does not entirely comport with reality as it turns out, then we will beat reality until it confesses. Does Listen, this mean you guys? A lot of people get hung up on semantics and things, but I think we're going for a larger moral truth here. Yeah, and you yeah. told me there'd be no math on this podcast. I, Does I this mean you guys didn't that. get me an anniversary gift? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Peace and Legislation or War and Investigations Edition. Otherwise known as the 200th Anniversary <laughs> Edition. <laughs> happy anniversary season. I Thank you, Terry. Oh, happy anniversary. We're so glad you're here. Uh, I'm you did get us presents, actually. Yeah, you <laughs> did, did, actually. We'll talk about that later. I think that that line from the State of the Union is now... Donald Trump's version, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> Can I just say, has there ever been a couplet? The ghost of Johnny Cochran wrote this line. Has there ever been a couplet before in the State of the Union? I don't know that there has. There I mean, probably has. I but think I by keep... the 18th century, they dispensed with talking. They never really talked about <laughs> I feel like it's like it's like an LSAT thing, right? It's like let peace is to war right. as legislation is to investigation. It, it is <laughs> something. Can, can we just all agree? It's a super bad line. It's a, it just doesn't make any sense. There can be no pe- – wait, peace without legislation? What? There, it's either there, peace and legislation or war and investigations. Right. In other words, it was that to say, like, if you investigate me, I will invade someone? I want or, someone or, to sample this. I want it in a hip-hop song. Uh, sure. Or is it pe- – so, right, the, the war and peace thing, is that between the branches or is that – like, do we invade another country in a kind of wag the dog scenario, like kind of thing? And is it peace with honor? I don't know. They're, These are the layers, the rhetorical can, layers and subtext of Donald Trump's speeches. It can deep. I confess something just right up front, though? I didn't watch the State of the Union. Oh, neither did I. I, I never watched the I'm the only the one here who watched it. It was your <laughs> professional you responsibility. Then. My professional responsibility was to read it this morning because I, I just can't handle watching it. You person. got most of it, I think, by reading it. Did you read it, Susan? I skimmed it. Okay. I looked at Twitter, yeah. like on the 11-hour delay, That's where people are like reading. making some joke. Apparently, Nancy Pelosi clapped, and it was funny. She I don't know. She did clap, and she got caught in this frame, like <laughs> Joe and I were talking about It was like morning, the baby shark. Where it looked like she was doing a sort of... <laughs> 
<laughs> kind of yeah. clap. I think it was just her caught in a frame, but I'm sure she looks at that photo and is like, I'll take it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Works for me. Uh, we're here in the New Jungle studio with Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Yo. Hi. We're recording in the morning a little bit earlier for us. The so. state of the podcast is yeah. strong. <laughs> it's it's strong. highly caffeinated. It's highly caffeinated No in scotch way. today. No scotch, although there is like a nearly empty bottle of bourbon and... An old glass of scotch sitting on the table. It's technically after 10 in the morning. Yeah. Like the AA line. <laughs> Basically, this studio looks like, like a frat 15. house, just in case you've never been here. Uh, on the podcast this week, President Trump delivers his second State of the Union address. Meanwhile, prosecutors send a subpoena to Trump's inaugural committee, and the president is feuding with his intelligence chiefs again. Um, so let's talk about what we've been talking here about the City Union speech. I think for purposes of our podcast, certainly, and I, and I think actually the high, the kind of the, the big news takeaway probably, in addition to all the platitudes about unity and these kinds of things, which I tend to dismiss because most presidents say that and they frequently say that after their party has suffered a midterm loss in the Congress, the president did seem to be saying, I'm willing to work with you, but if you investigate me, uh, no dice. That's it. Uh, ben, let me ask you, I mean, is that surprising. I mean, it sort of seems like that's kind of been the president's position all along, which is that I'm willing to be cooperative unless you come for me and then it's it's going to be a war between us. Yeah. So, I mean, that has been his position. I, I got to say, I mean, jokes aside about the phrase, I don't really understand what he was trying to say there. Was he objecting to congressional investigations? Was this fundamentally about the Mueller and SDNY investigations, which he's imputing to Congress in some sense? Is it uh, a general statement that I am not uh, – I will not cooperate if with anything legislatively if I'm under investigation. Surely he doesn't mean that. Uh, I don't actually – was he talking about a general climate of investigation? I really actually can't parse what he was trying to say other than that it was a, a sort of generic warning. I don't like being – you know the subject of all these investigative activities and I'm and I'm grouchy about it. So I took it actually as sort of a ham-fisted play on a similar argument that we saw from the Clinton administration and and sort of and prior administrations that have been under investigation which is the idea that the president being investigated is so distracting is such a hindrance to domestic policy foreign policy it's it's holding the entire country back and so i thought it was sort of trying to capitalize on that right investigating me is harming all of us which i think is something that prior presidents have argued richard nixon actually quite explicitly did so right and he just he like put it in this weird phrase that made it less clear but that's what i think he was trying to get at well but he but he did seem to be very specifically saying legislation goes with peace invest presumably he means between the branches here investigations trigger war and are incompatible with legislation. And again, I don't know how to parse the phrase, but he does seem to be very specifically saying, I will not cooperate with Congress on legislative matters if I'm subject to investigation. I I agree that was the bottom line, but I think we have to look at this play. And I think you're right, Susan, it was a political play. He's trying to position himself in a broader context, which is the populist appeal of Donald Trump politically in the country. And that involves two things. One is, 
you know, I can promise you a brighter future, but I'm going to scare the crap out of you. And I'm the only one who can save you from the scary stuff. And this whole speech had those two, you know, that the contrasting picture of look at all the scary stuff we're facing. But if you all unify behind me, I can present you with this glorious future. Although I would agree, Susan, it was completely ham handed in the way it was done. It was preposterously posed. But that's also, you know, the core uh, marketing tactic of every populist leader, which is I, you know, I alone can fix it. I'm the one who understands the true needs of the people. And, you know, and so coming off a confrontation with a new Democratic House, which he lost explicitly, you know, unambiguously lost, he's basically saying, let's not fight, but let's not fight because I'm the only one who can save us from a scary world. So he's basically trying to set it up so that if he doesn't get his policy agenda advanced, A, it's the Democrats' fault, and B, there will be catastrophic consequences. I think there's. it was also interesting how he was at times, he was toggling between giving what I think what he understands as a kind of solemn, scripted speech where he tends to talk a lot more slowly. He with kinda, alliterative phrases. With alliterative phrases. Couplets. He does this thing where he goes a lot. And he has these sort of ticks that he goes through when he's reading. And then you could tell where he was veering from the script if he followed along. And he mostly stuck to the script. But there were also the moments where he was sort of feeling the crowd. And it was toggling more into the mode of the campaign rally. And, you know, this you know, there were there certainly there were members that were sort of cheering him and and, and, oh, the, and they wouldn't do that for me, he said to the veteran. <laughs> right. I mean, there was a lot of he was trying to sort of bring the room in. And to the point about the the kind of, you know, what I think he probably thought was a clever formulation of Warren investigations and all that, it was like you could see when you could see this, if you watched it, he was sort of trying out the line and he even kind of turned his body a little bit and it just fell in the room. It did not work. And I think it was – you know, there were some people who were clapping for that, but I think even if you looked on the Republican side, people kind of cringed, like, "Oh God, this is this is not the tone that you want to set." Where, you know, I only negotiate as long as you back away from me and and don't do your job of oversight. But he, but there's a little bit more to it than that, right? Because he's mm-hmm. basically saying, you know, ten days from now will have another government shutdown or a state of emergency if I don't get what I want. He's not offering any substantial you know, component of the democratic agenda to get passed, right? No wall deal was put on the table last night. Right. Yeah. And no, and, and and it's it's not like, you know, if you're a, a Medicare for all person or a, you know. A, a, he didn't a, talk about DACA, you right, know. Well, he didn't. He, well, enough, a Medicare for all, he explicitly said, I will never allow this country to become socialist. Right. Yeah. So, so which, it, you know, suddenly everyone pans to Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the audience. Right. So, so, his, so his basic deal that he's offering, as I understand it, is back off me and pass my agenda and back off on the investigative side and give me what I want substantively. Well, that's actually not a deal, right? That's a surrender demand. And he's issuing a surrender demand to people who just beat him, both electorally and 
in their latest confrontation. And so there's a kind of weirdly delusional quality to it. It's as though Bush in 2006, having just gotten defeated, walked in and said, now now give me everything I want. Or if Barack Obama had done that in either 2010 or 2014, that's not actually the way midterm election losses work, that you then walk into Congress and demand everything that you couldn't have gotten before you lost. I actually think this is this is an important point and it is kind of it's it's interesting to watch. It's a president who has no power of political persuasion. And you know, as we, you know, right, he's he has given up uh, negotiating over this wall. He's talking about emergency declarations. And this is something, you know, we've talked about it in other contexts, but as you know, right, Trump really he isn't able to do what a president is supposed to do in order to ordinarily lead, which is convince other people of his positions. And so what he does is repeat stuff to his very, very narrow base and then starts exploring for the areas, you know, foreign policy, emergency declarations, things in which he can get what he wants or he can be perceived to be doing something in a context in which he doesn't have to persuade people. The problem is that's not the job that he has. So can we talk for a second about the foreign policy content in the speech? Because I think, Shane, you made an important point a couple minutes ago by noting that this isn't just about Democrats and Republicans. This is about executive and legislative. And part of his, you know, juxtaposition of investigations and legislation is basically telling Congress how to do its job. And we know that Republican members of Congress are as averse to that as Democrats are, particularly as they see a president who appears to be increasingly flailing. They're less and less inclined to sort of go along with his preferences. And we saw that play out in the confrontation over the government shutdown, that there were Republicans defecting over time. So, you know, I I think that he had that line in there about welcoming our troops home from Syria with thanks, you know, and And that fell flat. He had a section in there about the negotiations uh, over the future of Afghanistan and achieving a peace deal there. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But basically, one way or another, we're coming home. And this is going to be somebody else's problem. That also falls flat with most Senate Republicans anyway. And you know, the president was rebuked on Syria and Afghanistan by the Senate very, very recently. So I, I feel as though... Even speaking to Sen- to Republicans on the Hill, he was articulating an agenda that does not have that they are not persuaded of. There's not even unity within but, the party. But he even articulates a, an agenda that he isn't persuaded of. And so I think back to, you know, the last State of the Union in which one of the president's invited guests was this North Korean defector who he had stand up and referred to this right, this this really horrifying story and sort of tried to put forward, you know, this this empathetic view vision of the North Korean people as Kim Jong-un's sort of, you know, primary victims. In the intervening year, he has said, quote, we've fallen in love, right? He's completely abandoned any sense of sort of right, moral and he announced outrage. a new summit last night. Exactly. Yeah. And so he even sent me in those a love one letters year. and now we're in love. But I think this gets to something that actually I mean I might disagree a little bit on the idea that he does he's not persuaded. I think one of his core ideas has been that committing the United States, as he would call it, endless wars, is just a recipe for disaster. And he and he's stuck very hard to that. Like I don't see Donald Trump 
invading Iran or wanting to. I mean, he talks about we were nearly at war with North Korea and I solved it and now we're in love. That kind of goes back to the idea of him as the the sole fixer of all problems. It's the sort of authoritarian instinct in him. It's the solipsist in him. But I, I do think that he's saying to everyone in that room last night, we're not about foreign adventurism. We're not about overcoming these troops. We are pulling out whether you like it or not. He's been very consistent But he's on not that. about fixing the problems. He's about ignoring them and walking well, away and that, saying okay, we don't so there's care the about those problems anymore. <laughs> right, yeah. I he think he thinks is... pulling – he thinks we can pull out of these places. He doesn't want to acknowledge that no, actually, as long as these wars have been going on, the timing is still not right for us to withdraw. I also find it really striking that – he managed to get through that whole speech and talk about Syria and talk about Iran and talk about Afghanistan and really not reckon with the primary driver of these American military engagements over the last 17, 18 years, which is terrorism. He basically didn't, you know, put it up there on the threat board as a significant well, issue. ISIS is defeated. It- he, yeah, well, he did at least make, you know, avoid the mistake of saying that ISIS had been completely defeated. They, the, the script saved him from that. But, you know, I do think that that's reflective of where the U.S. military is, what the national security strategy says, you know, that we're in a world now where great power competition has come back as the major issue for the United States to address. What I found really striking is that, you know, in his in his description of America as America, what is American greatness? What does America first mean, both at home and abroad? He totally abandoned the bipartisan tradition of previous presidents in eras of great power competition, which is to say our freedoms, our values, our way of life is a model to the world. It's something that makes us attractive, that makes other people want to be like us. And that's how we win in the world. This was not that vision at all. This was, we're America the small. We're going to do things for ourselves here at home, and we just don't give a crap about the rest of the world. In fact, the only thing that the rest of the world does is cheat us in trade and send drugs and gangs into our country. The ent- Like every crime in America, gun violence in America, the drug problem in America is all because of immigrants in that speech, all of it. And, you know, it, it's just this... Very, very striking America the small vision. So it was the third longest speech, I think, State of the Union speech by a president. Beat Bill Clinton. Beat Bill Clinton. Donald Trump has another record, which is that his inaugural committee raised more, vastly more money than any other inaugural committee Good in history. You like this? Yeah, yeah you that's see where smooth. we're going? I, like that it? was smooth. You just kind of eased into it. I'm going to take you over here now. Uh, $107 million, I think, was the final number, which was twice the previous record set by Barack Obama's resignation. Because it was high class. It was a gold-plated inauguration. <laughs> right. Well, that, there are some classy, prosecutors who would like to know party. what they spent that $107 million on. So this week it was reported that prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, you remember them, uh, have subpoenaed the inaugural committee for a range of information, documents, communications, Things that appear to be aimed at answering the question, what exactly did you spend all of that money on? 
Uh, and I, where did you get that money? And where did the money come from? Right. So these are two the two thrusts. We should note as as a, an interesting backdrop to this, a number of reports uh, over the past couple of years, because it's been known for a long time how much they raised on the committee. You've heard from former inaugural committee chairs and both parties coming forward saying, I don't know how you raise that much money and I don't know what in the world you would spend $107 million on. There were people saying, I can't even imagine how I could spend that much money on inaugurations. And these were, you know, we've had, uh, you know, historic inaugurations like Obama's uh, as kind of a benchmark for this. Um, so there's that question as well as, as Tammy said, where's the money coming from? And there's been a lot of reporting on the issue of whether or not foreign money found its way through straw donors and cutouts into the inaugural committee, which of course would be a crime, be a violation of federal law. You can't be a foreigner giving to an election or an inaugural committee. There's one individual who actually is named in the subpoena, this man, Imad Zuberi, who was a big high roller donor to Democrats and suddenly gave uh, a ton of money to the Trump inaugural committee. So let me ask, Susan, let me ask you this. I mean, in terms of what, what struck me about this is we've got the Mueller probe and we're talking about how the Mueller probe seems to be kind of coming in for a landing. Maybe. We'll see. But there's this active SDNY piece and now there's this inquiry into the inaugural committee. My first reaction was, you know, whatever does or doesn't get settled by Mueller vis-a-vis Russian intervention and interference, now there's this whole other line of inquiry that's opening up that sounds potentially really serious and sort of of a piece with the idea of foreigners mucking about in our democratic processes. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I there's been speculation for a long time that this SDNY probe ultimately posed a greater risk to the president than the Mueller investigation potentially, in part because the prosecutors in the Southern District don't have a mandate, right? Mueller has sort of a specific, you know, jurisdictional authority and and really isn't able to exceed it. And so whenever Trump talks about, you know, looking into the Trump organization as being a red line, that just isn't relevant in, in the Southern District. They can investigate any sort of properly predicated crime. And so at the same time that there was reports about the subpoena of the inaugural committee, there's also a suggestion that maybe they're talking to um, individuals in the Trump organization. And so I do think that the the question here is whether or not prosecutors are now going to start looking into a realm in which things will snowball and sort of and, and spiral into what kind of business was the Trump organization engaged in. The thing about the inaugural committee and the money with the inaugural committee is it is part and parcel with the underlying concern of the Mueller investigation, right? This issue of foreign influence. And it's all taking place in a period of time in which I would suggest the Trump campaign is on its least careful behavior, right? Because this is the period of time in which Flynn is making the calls to Kislyak. This is the period of time in which people are lying to federal investigators because Donald Trump was just elected president of the United States. And so I think that there is this sort of we're riding high, we're untouchable. The right, campaign with all these foreign governments with no briefings from the State Department. And yeah, exactly. Mixing business interests. Jared is having you know these meetings with um, with Chinese investors to the building. Ivanka is in meeting the Japanese prime minister, right? It's this whole period of time in which they're just being really pretty flagrant in 
not abiding by by the rules and sort of wanting to to be really like where the, those those sort of those care, careful ethics rules. And so, while I don't think that this this doesn't have a clear tie to Russia, I do think that it has the potential to unite a narrative, which is that these people are corrupt. They're open for business, and foreign governments rushed in to capitalize. And we've been so focused on what the Russians were doing. We were so focused on what the Russians were doing prior to the election. But guess what everybody else has been up to since the election? And that does strike me as potentially a really, really perilous area for the president, especially if you're someone who suspects that that they weren't they weren't really, really careful or really, really scrupulous. Do we know... How this in, this investigation of the inaugural committee's financing came about? Did do we know? I mean, as we think about what this means for the broader Mueller investigation, or what the arc of it is at this point, do we know if this grew out of something that Mueller handed off to the SDNY? Was this something they did on their own? How would we know that? I don't think I, Ben. Do you remember? No, I don't think we know. Yeah. And I think the question is exactly the right one because it actually matters uh, in terms of what they're investigating. So look, on the one hand, I think it is the assumption latent in Susan's comments is a very reasonable one, that you have the Mueller investigation, which is of Russian influence. But then there's these other, you know, there's these Emiratis and there's this, uh, and you got this giant pot of money in the and so you you sort of think about this as a kind of residual, all the other corruption kind of investigation. It's just a big swamp. It's a big swamp. and it, <laughs> so it, You so might call it a swamp. You might want to drain it, you know. <laughs> um, so that's, that's one way to think about it. But another possibility is that it emerges out of the Michael Cohen investigation, right? It emerges out of something that the Southern District is doing that involves campaign finance, improprieties oh. um, by the Trump campaign. And of course, the Trump campaign then has, there's this other entity that arises, which is the inaugural committee. And so if you're looking at campaign finance improprieties, uh, and then all of a sudden there's a $107 million operation that gins up out of nowhere. And who was the deputy chair of the RNC fundraising effort? Mm. Michael Cohen. <laughs> well, and then there's, of course, bridges between the two. And Elliot Broidy was on that. Right. And, so. and Rick Gates, who is involved in both the campaign and the inaugural committee. This is quite of a coincidence. It's and a Boy Scout troop, these guys. Mm-hmm. And yeah. who is cooperating. And so I think you can, you can imagine it's very different theories of what the interest in this emerges from. And they give rise to different narratives about what's being investigated here. A couple of points of caution, though. Number one, a subpoena for records is an early stage investigative tactic. So if you're looking at, you know, whatever the source of the interest, you have a you have a grand jury investigation, one of the first things it's going to do is say give us all the records. So I don't think, you know, the fact that there's a subpoena means you know, we're at a late stage of the investigation. It means we're at an early stage of the investigation and most investigations don't pan out into anything. I do think for the reason that that Shane and Susan were talking about earlier, this investigation there is there is something that is weird about this, which is just the amount of money that comes in and goes out in a short space of time 
is mind-blowing, and it is much greater than the amount of money that it costs to run an inauguration. And so the question, what was this committee doing? Like, what, what, what was its actual activity? That is a forensic question that is answerable because you do have records of all the transfers of money, right? You do have all the records of where the money came from and where it went. And all of those entities that it went to have people associated who you can haul in front of a grand jury if they're not willing to come and cooperate. You can make them cooperate. And so the Southern District of New York is really, really, really good at reconstructing complex money operations and figuring out whether there were crimes committed in connection with them. And I think when you have a $107 million short-term inflow and outflow, that just it sends up all kinds of red flags. And I think the, the, the real significance of this is it means that some people who are serious are on that question. So just to put a fine point on this too, I mean, when we talk about financial crimes, we're, we're saying this is a pattern that is suggestive in the generic case of money laundering. Mm -hmm. That's what this looks like. And the investigators will be able to determine, you know, I think to a, to a high degree of confidence, whether or not that actually occurred. And so we should also note that the case, by the way- Not necessarily money laundering. It's suggestive of something. So well, it could okay, be it could be illicit theft. financial activity. It could be theft. It could right. be theft. Well, money laundering is actually a form or of theft. Or it could be or it could be spending campaign. It could be spending inaugural funds on things that are not supposed you are not right. supposed right. to use inaugural right. funds. To right. funnel for. money to Well, the funneling somebody. of money for foreign influence yeah. purposes for instance. In other words, you know, some Russian says I'll give a million dollars to the inaugural committee in exchange for something down the road and they use some middleman as and, the And let's be clear. Funds. When we say there's red flags, I mean one of the most significant red flags is is uh, Rick Gates apparently asking Ven if they will accept direct payment from donors rather than coming through the inaugural committee. So, so that the record keeping is Rick Gates, who engaged in extensive money laundering with his right. business partner, Paul Manafort, <laughs> i.e. he knows how to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Again, I'm not, I'm not accusing it. I think to your point, though, Ben, it's like it's important because when people see all of this smoke, I think we need to, to, to say, OK, the potential sources of fire could be one, two and three. And SDNY is very well positioned to find out if that's true. I think I am sort of curious what people's instincts are. So this is a national security podcast. And obviously, the like investigations into the president writ large have sort of taken over the past two years. But I can imagine two stories if this actually does become an investigation. One is kind of your classic like waste, fraud and abuse, right? They're spending a bunch of money on stuff that they're being overbilled. And, and maybe they're spending money on on sort of kickbacks that they aren't supposed to be spending money on. And, and there's, uh, you know, reporting and records violations. And I'm not minimizing any of that. That's all really important stuff. It's not really sort of this podcast. Yeah. There's another story here, which is that the reason why we have rules about who can who can contribute not just to campaigns but also to inaugurations is this really, really important question of foreign influence because we know that these are vectors by which groups can pass money to the president and to individuals who are going to become high-ranking officials in administration and actually influence them and their decision-making on important foreign policy questions and, and issues. And because of the chaos of this administration and particularly the chaos of sort of the early transition period mm -hmm. where they're all caught by surprise, there, there isn't careful planning, these aren't people who are really experienced. I am curious which lens you think we should be looking at this through in the early stages. You know, I, 
I've been thinking about this a little bit in terms of the the Middle Eastern governments who were suddenly confronted with a Trump victory and trying to figure out how to build a relationship with somebody with whom they essentially had very little relationship and didn't really understand. And, you know, you saw them basically and and The New Yorker, among others, has done some really, you know, deep dives on this. You saw them basically working every single vector they could. You know, if you look at the Russian influence operations, what we know about them at this point, they were working every vector they could, right? So I, I imagine that we would see that replicated across a whole set of actors and that it it wasn't necessarily in every case about some policy goal of a foreign government. It might just be some pecuniary interest of some foreign businessman, you know, and there are plenty of people in and around Washington and in and around the Trump organization, clearly, who are willing to intimate that they can help people achieve influence, whether or not they can actually deliver. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all if the story that comes out is a whole bunch of people who were spending money in ways that are illegal in an attempt to garner influence, but who may not actually have ever gotten the quid pro quo that they were looking for. I would say you always start with this group of people, you always start with the broadest pattern and then you narrow over time. So if you think about what was Paul Manafort and Rick Gates doing, what they were fundamentally doing was uh, stealing and concealing large, very la laundering large sums of money. Now, what is your counterintelligence interest in that? It's the nature of what that money was and who that money connected them to. So you start with there was graft. And then you say, and the nature of that graft is very suspicious because they're dealing with, you know, the president of Ukraine and his political party and their Russian intelligence handlers. I think this is the same thing. You start with, what is obvious, which is there's too much money that ran through this inaugural committee. That money had to come from somewhere and it had to go somewhere. And so you start with the question, were those transactions legitimate? Was this all fundraising in connection with the performance of an inauguration and the performance of an inauguration? If the answer to that question is no, the second question becomes, okay, what was the nature of the non-inaugural activity? Is the nature of the non-inaugural activity merely self-dealing corruption? Or does it have one of these vectors with other uh, concerns that we've learned to have about people connected with Trump? But I think you start at the base of that pyramid and work up. You don't, you don't say, let's assume from the beginning that this is a blank uh, you know, a foreign influence issue or a just simple graft issue. But I think your broad point, which is that, you know, we think of ethics and national security as distinct from one another. And what these people have taught us is, no, they are really not distinct from one another. Ethics concerns are ultimately national security concerns. So you got to hold both of those ideas in your head at the same time. So the day after the inauguration, January 21st, 2017, President Trump, newly minted President Trump, went to CIA headquarters and gave a speech in which he said, very, very few people could do the job you people do. And I want to just let you know, I am so behind you. 
And I know maybe sometimes you haven't gotten the backing that you've wanted and you're going to get so much backing. Maybe you're going to say, please, don't give us so much backing. Mr. President, please, we don't need that much backing. But you're going to have that. Oh, God. Well, that lasted a long time. That was in front of the wall, the memorial wall. That was in front of the the memorial wall. So last week. You're going to have so much backing, Shane. So much backing. (laughs) I'm right behind you with a knife. You're gonna, right. You're going to say to you're I'm gonna... so far behind you, I have no clue what you're talking about. So President Trump's intelligence chiefs appeared last week at the annual worldwide threats assessment hearing, normally routine, mundane affair. Uh, and as we all know from the, from the coverage of the past week, uh, articulated uh, – well, more than articulated – gave their assessments on a range of national security issues from ISIS – to the prospects of denuclearization in North Korea, to Iran's intentions with regards to building nuclear weapons that were significantly distinct from the positions that the president has taken publicly and what he has asserted are the facts. This gave rise to this new feud yet again. The president was not backing his intelligence chiefs. In fact, he was saying publicly and on Twitter they were naive uh, he said intelligence should go back to school. It was just a big misunderstanding, Shane. It was well, all the media distortion. Well, part two, right, is that the president has the intel chiefs over two days later, not the next day, possibly because he was too angry to look at them. Uh, they come in. He says, what's this all about? What are you saying about Iran being a bunch of kindergartners? This is how he retells the story. So kindergarten and the story equals harmless. He really, really seized on this question of Iran and why was the intelligence community saying Iran was harmless when in fact that is not actually what they said. And they said, Mr. President, if you read the testimony that we gave, P.S. he hadn't, you will see that we on a range of issues talk about the threats from Iran. We have a lot of nuance in this discussion. Then the president said they were – they claimed that they were misquoted. Uh, in the media, you know, during that live television hearing, that and that happens to him the all the time. So and anybody who wants anyone who wants to hear what they said in substance, we excerpted right. all the relevant questions and all the relevant answers and stuck them on the Lawfare podcast, and you can hear them in their own words. Right. It's t- it's twenty minutes of your time so well spent. A few days later, President Trump gives an interview to Face the Nation and Margaret Brennan, in which he says, "Well, they told me they were quote misquoted. Maybe they were. Maybe there weren't. I don't know." So now we're back to this sort of weird tension again between the two of them, uh, the two sides. I'm less interested in the fact that President Trump fights with his intelligence agencies. I think it is very clear to me that the president pushes back against anyone who says what he doesn't want to hear or who delivers a message that is at odds with either his view of things or the narrative that he's trying to assert. I am interested for your guys' take, though, on why he is doing it specifically with regards to North Korea and Iran. These seem to be the two things that really lit him up. The idea that the intelligence community was skeptical, North Korea would give up its nuclear weapons, and the assessment, which has been in place for more than a decade now, uh, that Iran, despite all of its other aggressive and bad behavior, is not trying to build a nuclear weapon. And he essentially said, yeah, I think they are the entire intelligence community is wrong, time will prove me out. So I'm curious about what you make of the fact that he is seizing on these two particular issues right now. So on North Korea, I think it's fairly clear, which is that he has decided that he and Kim Jong-un have a thing and can make a deal. 
And he's decided that in part because he hates our troop deployments on the Korean Peninsula. He always has. And he, they're really expensive. They're really expensive. We're being taken advantage of, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this has been a super longstanding view of his since before he ever ran for president. And so he's trying to implement a deal that will give him cover to reduce, if not eliminate, that American presence on the Korean Peninsula. And, you know, he's been telegraphing this almost from day one. I mean, he started with fire and fury, but moved on quickly from there. And so he ha- he cannot afford to have his IC contradicting him on whatever bullshit assurances he's going to get from the North Koreans. And, you know, we have open source intelligence that's calling bullshit on what the commitments that the North Koreans have made. So it's not even like the IC is alone or using sources that nobody can fact check here. This is all just transparent crap that he's trying to sell. And yet, you know, he wants the cover to sell it. On Iran, I think it's a little bit different. I actually think that I agree with you, Shane. I don't think he's interested in, you know, military confrontation with the Iranians, but he is really interested in beating up on the Iranians. And he knows that his best friends in the region want to beat up on the Iranians. And, you know, our American partners in the region in confronting Iran have their own intelligence and their own intelligence sources and would like us to be more forward leaning and have their own legacy of not trusting American intelligence assessments on Iranian nuclear aspirations. And so I think that's probably playing in here. You know, he probably gets a phone call from Netanyahu saying, well, you know, my guys tell me X, Y and Z. And then Trump turns to one of his aides and says, you know, does RIC agree? And RIC doesn't agree. And so who's he going to believe? Nuance. Right. Who, yeah. who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes, right? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's right. I think he's focusing on this, though, because it's, it's the place in which oversight is functioning the way it's supposed to. So – a lot of people sort of couched the you know the worldwide threats testimony as like some kind of betrayal of the president. Look, like you're under oath. You actually it would be a crime for any of those people to to say anything that was untrue. Those documents are really really carefully coordinated and um, very disciplined process to write them in the first place. Usually they're Which coming goes through the White House. Exactly. By the way. Usually they're coming out of the White House. Usually the president is not learning about the worldwide threats hearing information for the first time. When his intel chiefs and, and he didn't testify. he's been briefed on elements of these before, of course. Exactly, and I think this this gets to the point and why sort of you know first of all the notion that the CIA is naive and like passive on Iran is like a little bit crazy. That's not their historical it's, it's more than a crazy. Uh, their yeah. historical reputation there, um, right? But these are the two areas in which what the president has done is he's tried to convince the American public on policy that is not backed by facts. And so internally, he's able to just ignore his intel chiefs. Whenever they tell him something in the PDB or they brief him on something, he just doesn't read it or he ignores it. And the purpose or one of the purposes of a worldwide threats hearing is for Congress to call the intel chiefs to the public in a public forum and say, give us the information that we need to know about constructing legislative policies, legislative priorities, what is happening? And so a lot of times 
the worldwide threat hearing seems like sort of a waste of time, right? Because they're not saying it's all unclassified. They're not really saying anything new. They're, they're usually just reaffirming what we already know. But actually, this is the situation in which it, it's a demonstration of why you have something like a worldwide threats hearing, because it allows Congress to unearth the difference between what the White House is saying about the state of the world and what the intelligence community has assessed. And so, you know, I, I do think that there's something to maybe something to read in terms of, you know, what are the White House priorities, right? These are the these are the sensitive spots that they're sort of seizing on. But but more than that, I just I think that it's those are the two at the moment, the two narratives that they're trying to advance that are that are just not backed by facts. And, and oversight has essentially called them out on it. So two things. One, I I do think there is a sense in which he was hearing this for the first time, uh, which is because he doesn't listen to his briefings. No, I think it's I think it's that his briefings, you know, when when Gina Haspel or Dan Coats comes over to brief him, they don't say, "Mr. President, we assess with high confidence that you are full of shit." Right. What they say is we assess. They might be thinking it. They they might be thinking it, but they've developed these ways of briefing him. I'm sure, not that I'm privy to the briefings, that are accurate as to the intelligence community's assessment, but not especially in your face, Mr. President. That you know you're living on a different planet than the reality-based one in which we do our business. And if you listen to Haspel's testimony in particular carefully. She really did try to talk that way, and members forced her to answer the question directly. So you're saying that Iran is not violating. Well, they're making preparations consistent with intending to violate, but you're saying they are not violating. That's correct, Mr. That's the sort of tone of it. And so then you have the the means that he actually receives information, which is television. So he's sitting in his you know bathrobe somewhere and watching television saying the intelligence chiefs are contradicting him. And that is probably not the experience that he's had of being briefed by them. The experience he's had of being briefed by them is him telling him things and him saying, yes, yes, thank you. I, I think blah, 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 right? So that's that's thing number one, which I suspect he did really have a moment where he was like, holy shit, who are these people and why are they saying these these, these things, right? How dare they? The second thing is I actually think one of the – this is a little bit of a hot take that I don't expect a lot of people to share. But I think Dan Coates deserves a lot of credit. You know, People keep saying he's a low-key, non-entity kind of guy. But I'm thinking like, all right, who is the agency head who has kept his head down, allowed, you know, protected his agency, allowed his people to do his, their work, but yet – Whenever he's in public and he's asked a direct question, not hedged, not he just tells the truth. And I think that, you know, the, the, it happened at Aspen and it happened here. And I think he gets some points here for for being, you know, yes, he's low key. He's not, you know, he's not you know, going out and giving speeches, denouncing his boss. He's not having public feuds with him uh, in a kind of Nikki Haley sort of way. He's actually keeping his agency pretty, pretty protected and out of the news. But there are these times where he just gets asked a question and he just answers it. And I think he gets some points for that. So uh, 
I, you know, I think if the bar... (laughs) Susan is rolling her eyes. I'll wait my turn. (laughs) I think if the bar is not bullshitting or being honest when asked a direct question, okay, maybe he clears that bar, but that's a pretty freaking low bar for the director of central intelligence, okay? Protecting his people, we have yet to see because I do think what this incident reveals as we were just discussing, is that the president has some policy priorities that are contradicted by the intelligence analysis that he's getting and Congress is getting. And that suggests that it's quite possible that he, and if not he, his senior staff, are going to be pushing the IC to back him up. And so I don't know. We're going to have to see how well Dan Coats does protecting his people. And we're going to have to see how well Congress does protecting the intelligence community. The jury is still out on this, in my view. But the other thing, you know, I think is that the president has a super, he has a a filter that's about the narrative. I think you're right, Ben. And so if the media says his IC is contradicting him, that matters more in a way than his actual conversations with them. But I also think he has a super strong confirmation bias filter. We've seen this not just with intelligence briefings, but with discussions with foreign interlocutors, discussions with his own cabinet, discussions with senior members of Congress. He only hears what he wants to hear. And I think some of the reporting that came out in the wake of this threats briefing, you know, suggests just how bizarre and willfully dense he is about his intelligence briefings. You know, you know, this story, for example, that he insisted that Nepal and Bhutan were part of India and refused to accept that they were independent countries. I mean, it's, you know, that degree of confirmation bias is scary, frankly. Look, Dan Coats has not demonstrated leadership, right? The job of the of the director of national intelligence is to ensure that the president of the United States and the executive branch is is well briefed and making decisions on actual intelligence. And I think that the situation is is so clearly out of his control that it's just impossible to, to say that he's been a success by by sort of any measure. All right, let's go on to object lessons. Who wants to go first? Tammy wants to go first. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about the new rational security swag, and I'm proud to present a brand new, because I know that our our photos are a little old on our Facebook page and the rational security Twitter page and so on, a brand new photo of the RATSEC crew in our RATSEC t-shirts. And looks good. Yeah. You look tough. You, you look great. I look like a tough. Nobody looks better than Shane. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> kudos again to Joe for our fantastic design. Yeah, and the shirts look great. Look and you two can, buy, can them. buy them. Where? On the Lawfare homepage. <laughs> On the, at the lawfarestore.com. Oh, lawfarestore.com. Yeah. Yes. Not lawfareblog.com. So I have a um, quick object lesson, which is this article that actually appeared in the Washington Post was about a Miami Herald reporter, Carol Rosenberg. And, and the, the story is reporting that she was offered a buyout in sort of the, the most recent round of, um, uh, of offers, which I think are, are generally bad news for the media. It's part of the McClatchy um, buyout. Right, part of the McClatchy mm-hmm. buyout. And it hasn't reported whether or not she's accepted, um, but it has sort of sparked a, um, a round of people talking about what her current 
career and sort of the 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 importance of a single reporter. And um, uh, Carol has covered Guantanamo Bay in in a way, in sort of a, with with a singular focus and fashion. And so, I actually, do think it's a it's a really uh, important illustration of how important the media is to national security decision making, national security policy, and public conversation. In that one person who covers something over a period of decades develops an institutional knowledge that, frankly, doesn't exist even in the United States government. Uh, and eliminating a position like that actually can have really, really dramatic impacts on, you know, on the way the, the public, not just the way the public's informed, but the way policy is actually made. And so, you know, this is sort of the best, clearest illustration of the connection between a really vibrant and supported free press and national security. And so um, I don't know what uh, uh, she will ultimately decide to do. Um, it is nice to see so many people sort of having this opportunity to talk about the importance of her career. But I, I do think there's a there's a larger lesson in that. Can I just add too, from the, the journalist point of view on that? I would hope that editors in newsrooms are also recognizing that if our mission is to inform the public about what we deem to be important events, there is a real risk and getting to the point where only one reporter is really covering a story with the kind of depth and tenacity that Carol did. And I applaud her for all of the work she did. But I think as an institution, we take a very big risk when only one person is really doing the job the way it arguably needs to be done. Because when that person goes away, whether she retires or she has a buyout, we are have to face a devastating loss uh, and have a huge hole now that has to be filled. Ben. My object lesson is a little bit of a request. So we have been, for those of listeners who listen to the Lawfare podcast as well, uh, will have noticed that we have been uh, experimenting with some new forms uh, of podcasting. We've had uh, readings of, of articles on Lawfare. We've also had some other short form Stuff And we're kind of slowly moving toward a very regular format on the Lawfare podcast that has raised uh, really interesting questions about how we are going to finance this podcast growth. And one of the things that we've been talking about on both the Lawfare podcast and Rational Security is whether we should do podcast advertising. And we have uh, begun exploring that possibility, one element of which exploration involves a listener survey. And so that is my object lesson, our listener survey, a link to which is in the show notes today, both on the website and on uh, whatever device you may have used to access a, a rational security. Please take a moment and fill out our listener survey so that if we decide to go this route, we have a, a great portrait of our listenership to present to advertisers. And we promise you there will be no underwear commercials on Rational do Security. Do we promise that? Uh, uh, how about this? We promise that if we ever do an underwear commercial on Rational Security, Susan will read the copy. Then we can promise there will be no underwear commercials <laughs> on Rational Security. commercials? Socks. Okay. I yeah. do socks. You know how I feel about socks. Yeah. 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 Uh, and you know how I feel about the end of the podcast. It makes me sad. Except it's a chance to talk about Sophia again. That's true. And it's a chance to remind you that Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. And you can find our show page on the Lawfare website, which is not lawfarestore.com. It's lawfareblog.com. You should go to both of them. You should check out the podcast. You should take the survey. You should buy a hoodie. or. And a you beer. should click that support Lawfare button. 
There you go. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. The audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his new Dada opera, War by Investigation is a Piece of Legislation. Awesome. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I would see that. Sophia Yan could be doing some Dada keys in the budget. Bing, bing, bing in the background. <laughs> I don't feel like Dada opera would really be your thing, Ben. Definitely no, but, not but, my but, thing. But there have, been, there have been fun examples of it. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we can talk about that in a future episode. <laughs> On behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. And by the way, people, if you're like wanting to give $107 million to an inaugural committee, just click that support Lawfare button <laughs> and give it to Lawfare instead. Bye. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.